You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to On the Bench. I'm your host for today's episode, Brendan Sinone. Chris, do you like how I do? Welcome to On the Bench. It's my Jeff Cameron impersonation. It's <laughs> really hard to do. I don't know how he hey, does You it. do you, man. Just get into it. But Jeff's so good at what he does, and I'm just trying to emulate uh, an idol. So, anyways, that's Chris Nee. We are on the bench, and we are going to go over a litany of topics today. Baseball is off to a nice start. Softball is off to an amazing start. Men's basketball. Just end already. <laughs> it's time to write the postmortem uh, RIP. Sorry, Chris. And then um, what I really want to start with, though, and what we're going to focus on at the lead of the show here is spring practice is less than two weeks away, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I want to kind of start previewing, getting uh, our listeners and, and subscribers over at Knowles 24-7 into the football spirit. It feels like they, they aren't really quite there yet. So I want to try to manufacture that a little bit, if, if that's cool, Chris. So let's let's start off with that. Uh, before we get into spring preview, I'm going to go position by position over the next week or so here today we'll start with offense let's let's get your thoughts on we we got to speak with Derek Ray the new general manager of Florida State football uh, I'm a big GM scouting nerd anyway sounds like he is too it's so he was a man after my own heart what were your uh, what were your early impressions of Derek he's an organizer and an evaluator and he knows what he wants to do how to accomplish it and he has a purpose for why he took the job which is he wanted to work with Mike Norvell and get a feel for something a little different. I think he wanted to get out of the West Coast comfort zone that he had been in for much of his career and do something a little bit different, but obviously with some ties to that left coast of the country. The big takeaway that I had, and I want to get your thoughts on this, Chris, is, and you mentioned organization. I I think that's what his role really is, is streamlining the communication process, whether it's getting notes from coaches on the road, uh, getting film and passing on to the right people that seems like that's kind of all runs through him and then trickles out is that is that how you read his or understood his role as he defined it yeah bringing more efficiency to the system it's always a goal to be more efficient than you already were i think this staff has shown that they attempt to be very organized and attempt to do things at a high level i think this is about continuing that trend and improving upon it i think there were times at the end of this past recruiting cycle or the early signing period where that efficiency communication wasn't optimal is that fair yeah and that's always concerning that that to some degree from an outside view looks like cracks starting to emerge and you want to avoid that obviously and that's just mike norvell is known for being super organized and detail oriented and we've seen that over and over again have, have kind of described those examples when we do see them. So that, to your point, Chris, I think was a little concerning. So the fact that they then doubled down, they're going to invest in enhancing that aspect of the program. I, inherently, like I think that's a good thing. I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it can hurt to, to add someone like Derek Ray who comes off. It, we heard like great things about him with anyone we checked into uh, from the West Coast. So I think that's a good thing. I think that'll help with the communication of the the back office, or I guess the front office. Is it the back office or front office? Why do they call it the front office? Because I do I mean, all the stuff in the NFL. In the would be called the front office if it involves a GM. So, but then, but then, in college football, it's like it's. Like I think a, the back office is the people that you never see. Uh, mm-hmm. Derek Ray to me is a guy that's going to be a little bit more on the front lines. I like how I've derailed this podcast already. Good times. Okay, so 
we also got to speak to over the last month or so. And it's really cool initiative that Mike Norvell has is to make all newcomers available to the media. Uh, so, so we have a lot of guys that we've talked to about 15 or so. I don't think we have to go over every single one, Chris, but any general takeaways that you got from this new group of, of incomers guys who are here in the spring, that's both a handful of new freshmen and then the, the transfers as well. I mean, it's guys that want to play for this staff. Um, I think it's the most FSU recruited group to this version of FSU that they've had to this point in time. I thought AJ Duffy was really impressive. You know, we've heard he's a sponge how it's been kind of reiterated the way he spoke about things working with Tony Tokars, for example, that stood out to me. Uh, AZ Thomas is a kid I like a lot. I think he's a kid that's got a really mature head on his shoulders, and he's obviously very talented, so I think that will translate. Those are probably two guys I'd kind of pick out. Obviously, that's two of the three best players in the class from a ranking standpoint, so you'd hope they kind of stand out, but they certainly did to me. Uh, I thought Caden Lyles being very definitive that he's going to play center, which we expected anyways, but that's a no-nonsense dude with a great beard, so props to him. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of anyone else. Oh, Kaniah Charlton or Bishop Thomas? Who who do you swoon after more from a personality standpoint? Because both were really impressive. I, I like Bishop's shirt collection personally, <laughs> but I love Kaniah's personality a little bit more. All right. I can see that. Uh, Kaniah's got this big, like, big teddy bear kind of approach. Uh, Bishop just seems like someone just kind of like a cerebral, outside-the-box thinker. Both were really impressive, though. So I did generally, Chris, like really think highly of uh, how polished a majority of these uh, for the freshmen come in, how much these teenagers are comfortable talking to us. It's not the mo- easiest setting. God knows I stuttered, stammer over my own words all the time. Anyways, the fact that these guys are you know, speaking in very uh, coherent ways, I think it just speaks to the maturity of the guys that Mike Novell's bringing in. And I think that's been yeah. a consistent theme for him the last couple of years. Yeah. A couple other cliff notes like Daniel Lyons, Dante Anderson, really tight friends. They wanted to go to school together. That's a big reason why they're both here. Uh, Aaron Hester is kind of an all business kind of kid. That's the way he comes off. Uh, Daughtry Richardson talked a little bit about needing to morph his body some and loving to work with Alex Atkins. Alex Atkins is a guy that anybody that's involved with him, he, they always speak glowingly of him. He's clearly a guy that has respect of his players. Also, I think Omar Graham's a kid that very easily can slide into a leadership role. He just, it seems to come natural to him in the way he speaks about things, the way he conducts himself, the way he handles things, and also his work ethic. He has an outstanding work ethic. It's why he's at FSU. It's a big reason why he was able to elevate himself to that level of school. I got Johnny Wilson to smile. I thought that was that was a big win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the transfer is always funny because, you know, with transfers, it's they're looking for something. It, there's a reason they went in the portal. There's a reason they chose the place they chose. So it's kind of funny, but, you know, you mentioned Caden Lyles, very direct, uh, looks like a strength coach, kind of funny. Then you got the receivers, Micah Pittman's very, uh, I can't think of the right word, but he understands how to conduct himself in this setting very well. I think some of that comes from him doing his own YouTube channel, for example. Johnny Wilson's kind of funny. He's just kind of like, guys, I have to be here to talk to you. <laughs> and then once in a blue moon, that popped out with him. So, no, I, I – I think they got a good group. I love Jared Verse. Uh, that was mm-hmm. true dealing with him as a transfer before he committed to FSU. That has carried over. And, and talking to people about some of the recent events, like the Boys and Girls Club event that they did for NIL, um, Jared Verse is a guy that I've heard has just very much inserted himself into this team very quickly, very comfortably, and gets along very well with pretty much anybody and everybody on the roster. So that's a positive sign because that's something I thought he would be when he was a candidate for transfer. 
it's always good when what you hear about a recruit during the recruiting process kind of comes to fruition when they arrive on campus. That's 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 encouraging. Um, all right, Chris, let's talk a little bit about we got one, two, three, four, five different position groups I want to go over today as we start to preview spring practice that starts on March 5th. That's not this Saturday. Next Saturday, uh, expecting that to be a big recruiting weekend for FSU as well. Already started to confirm the names of visitors. You can check that out on Knowles 24-7. Uh, also, uh, we're expecting some former players to be there. Sante Sandals, one of them. And we'll see. There'll, there'll probably be more that we'll be able to confirm as it gets closer. So a lot of good stuff's coming up. We'll also get tour of duty access on March 1st at what, 6 a.m.? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> I'm an early riser, but that's pretty early. Uh, all right, let's go into the position preview here as spring is right around the corner. Let's start off with quarterback. FSU has three scholarship quarterbacks on the roster entering the spring. Jordan Travis, Tate Rodemaker, and then aforementioned A.J. Duffy, the true freshman, uh, four-star quarterback. Chris, are you ready to join me on the Jordan Travis Hive, J-Trav Hive? You no. ready? No. no? No, no. I think Jordan's a very capable, talented quarterback, but one, he needs to stay healthy more frequently, and two, he still needs to progress further, especially as a passer for FSU to be their optimal self. You get irritated every time you see me start up the JTRAF hype train on the message. No, board. I, I I like that you stand very firmly on the statistics that you lean on and the percentages and things of that sort. I like that. I think that's good. I'm also somebody that believes you should watch what you're watching, which I know you do. That's not a shot at you by any stretch. Um, and we know Jordan has some areas where he has to get better. And number one of those, especially when speaking of only three scholarship quarterbacks, one of whom I don't trust and one of whom's a true freshman – He's got to stay healthy yeah. for them to be good, or they have to go and get something else behind him, break in case of emergency type of situation. That's what evaluating Jordan Travis and and I kind of fall into the trap of this. Like I've seen the growth and the progression as a passer, and I've heard like some narrative around him is like, oh, has he plateaued as a passer? Like I don't know what people have seen to make them think that he's like confident that he's plateaued because he's he's only gotten progressively better. Yeah, he plateaued the past during season. last season, so. I get that maybe people think he's now touching a ceiling. Maybe that's what they mean by plateau maybe. in this situation. But I think that's a to-be-determined type of situation. Yeah, it, yeah, we haven't seen him plateau yet. Like Maybe he has reached it, but we don't know yet. I think there's still growth to be had because we've seen him continue to grow. The other side of that and the part that you've touched on, Chris, I do think this kind of plays into how you view building around him this spring is the injury history. And that's something like I can't – I can't – beat around the bush out like he gets he he does get hurt a lot he's missed multiple games the last two years with different injuries or has been limited in those games and when he's not a hundred percent uh i shouldn't say when he's not 100 he's not effective because he actually has been effective while not 100 percent. the issue is when he gets so limited to where you can't run the offense effectively like louisville two years ago when he was kind of a shell of himself or when he misses significant time like against florida this past year where him missing a couple series proved to be super detrimental uh, to this point, like it's hard to project injuries like those are kind of random. But the fact that it's happened to him so much does make it difficult to to fully believe that you can confidently put all your eggs in one basket with Jordan Travis. That's to me the, the weakness of his game is you know, the biggest. Uh, oh God, I always blank on the saying the biggest deficiency. No, availability. The biggest availability. Damn it. Damn it. It's a, it's a cliche. I'll think of it later. Go on. I think to his credit, he got better last year at protecting himself more, going out of bounds instead of fighting for that last yard, things like that. He did do a better job. The issue is he's still behind a mediocre to somewhat bad offensive line 
who we're hoping will improve and take a next step, but he's still going to get hit and he's going to get hit a lot. All quarterbacks get hit and the possibility of injury exists. It just seems like with him tends to happen at a higher rate than you would like. It is what it is. You hope he can continue to cut down the amount of snaps he misses because FSU in the last two years is over when he's not on the field. No, that's not true. Oh no. When he, yeah, I was gonna say when he doesn't start, it was the Jackson state game uh, or Jacksonville state game two years ago, but he, but he caught on the field because of that. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the best of the best ability is availability. That's what I was going for. Uh, so for now though, like I think Chris, like we kind of understand that this offense is being like built around him with the caveat is like, okay, how much better can he get is one of the big questions. And then two, because right now I think you can probably win six or seven games with Matt quarterback. Can he ascend his play and elevate it with the supporting cast, like you said, to to get you to the eight-win mark potentially, which is where some people are setting expectations. I think that's ambitious. But uh, if you can't uh, if, if you can't say, okay, confidently we can trust him to be our guy for 12 games this regular season to start every game, then you look at the depth. Tate Rotomaker, you hinted at earlier, Chris, uh, Hard to trust hint. at this point. You said a guy, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, I mean, but, but go no, ahead. I, I I don't want Tate being the quarterback out there. I don't have any belief in him being effective, especially against higher-level opponents in the ACC and out-of-conference opponents like an LSU or Florida. Mm-hmm. The issue with Tate to this point is like he'll have some really good moments in practice, but when the bullets start flying, when it gets real, when it gets to 11-on-11 or, or game settings um, – he has not performed well. That's me being pretty kind. Uh, and I, I like Duffy a ton. I'm just always skittish and, you know, from a scared stance of putting a true freshman into the fire, especially on a team that it's not plug and play of, hey, just let those weapons go be your weapons. They're high level. They're great. FSU hasn't shown that in two years. So I think it would be tough for a freshman to go in there and essentially have to be the playmaker. That's what the spring is. Well, not what it's totally yeah, about. There's a lot well, of that to learn in the spring. The, the mm-hmm. infusion of wide receivers, which we'll get to. The running back room being different because Corbin was Mr. Dependable and now he's gone. Uh, does a tight end emerge? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Of This offense might be a lot better than we think it is. But on what we know based off of two years and the guys that are returning on the roster, you know, it, it sort of is what it is at this moment. Do you think there's a scenario – as we look at three quarterbacks, Jay Trav's injury history, well-documented up to this point in the show, Tate Rotomaker, someone we don't have a lot of confidence in, A.J. Duffy, an unknown as a true freshman. Uh, with three guys on the roster, do you think there's any scenario they go through the spring? And let's say, Chris, like A.J. Duffy is really impressive uh, beyond what they're even anticipating. And I know the staff likes him a lot. I've heard decent things about his arm strength. He's a little smaller than like the 6'2 might indicate, but I've heard good things about him. Uh, from offseason stuff. But let's say A.J. Duffy uh, is awesome this spring and is someone who can legitimately push Jordan Travis, uh, takes a place as your number two quarterback. Do you think they're okay then at quarterback, or do you think they absolutely have to get a fourth on this roster before uh, late August of 2022? I think it would be sensible to add a fourth guy because he would essentially be your third guy in all hopes and plans. Um and maybe it's a one-year guy who understands that, you know, the opportunity may or may not be there. I'm, I'm not of the opinion they're going to get somebody that elevates that room at this point, but I do think they need somebody in case of emergency because, to me, it's a three-quarterback room with two guys that you trust, and one of those is a true freshman. So that's okay. just me. No, I, I think you have to have – there's not a whole lot of quarterback rooms, to my knowledge, that have just three. 
Um, and, and the last two, those, two years have shown tons of injuries in that group. And then for the guys injuries, so. to be behind the starter with the injuries is an unknown commodity and a commodity that you do know, and it's not really valuable up to this point. So yeah, yeah, you got to have to, I think, solidify the room. But I'm all on board with revolving your offense this season around Jordan Travis. See what happens. I think he gives you the best chance with your supporting cast, which we're getting to now, of winning. So let's go to the supporting cast. You miss Jay Sean Corbin. He's the biggest departure from the offense uh, this offseason. Declares for the NFL draft. I really was wishing he was going to come back just for FSU's sake because he is so dependable, does a lot of things well, can hit big runs. I think he's the only running back in the country to have two 80-yard touchdown runs this past season. So has some explosiveness, uh, does short yardage running well. Without him, Chris, I'll be honest, I'm – I look. I'm looking at the six running backs that they have on the roster right now: DJ Williams, Trayshawn Ward, Lawrence Tofilly, Corey Wren, Trey Benson, and Rodney Hill. And there's not a whole lot of warm and fuzzy that I'm getting from that that group. A lot of unknowns as we enter this part of the spring. I mean, the top two are Trayshawn Ward and Lawrence Tofilly. You need Tofilly to be healthy. Tofilly is certainly an explosive player. I would argue last year, him or Jakai Douglas may have been your most explosive player as far as capable of it on every play. Jakai Douglas, or I'm sorry. Uh, Jay Sean Corbin produced more in an explosive manner than either of those, just to be clear on that. Uh, with Ward, last year was kind of weird with Ward. I feel like after the Clemson game, it really went downhill for him as far as production, consistency, and some of the real flashes he supplied us prior to the Clemson game. I'm hoping for a little more consistency from him this year. And then after that, it's a matter of somebody's got to step up, whether that's Corey Ryan getting healthy and showing that he has elite speed, whether it's Rodney Hill being a versatile weapon, true freshman, doing a lot of things, but he's making a major jump from the level of high school ball he played to the level of college ball he'll be playing. Not that I don't think he's capable of that jump. It's just a question mark that surrounds him. DJ Williams came in out of shape. You need him to come in and be ready this year, be the banger he can be, be the guy that can finish runs, punish the defense, help you win in the fourth quarter when you have to win. And Trey Benson, to some degree, for lack of a better term, is their pet project, a guy that they absolutely loved in the high school ranks, had a catastrophic injury at Oregon, you took him, you believe he's healthy, you're ready to go. You're you're probably going to try to prove people somewhat wrong with him and show that he's capable of being a really, really good back that elevates that room. I, I think Benson's the biggest wild card, but mm-hmm. you know that room does not have a whole lot of – I know going into game two LSU that this dude is going to carry FSU on his back as a running back. I, there's not somebody I'd pinpoint as that right now. I think most people would probably say Treshawn Ward – but I remember the back half of last year when Trayshawn Ward did struggle. The final four games of the season for Trayshawn Ward, he averaged 3.95 yards per carry. And that doesn't include the Clemson game, by the way. I'm not sure if he got dinged up in that game. Uh, it did seem like he was a little shook during that game where the speed and the magnitude of that game did seem to impact him a little bit. But he did produce at other times. So we'll see what, what Trayshawn Ward can, can be. He's going to be a big part of the offense, I think, regardless whether he is someone who's going to and his attempts, his rushing attempts per game also went down. Went from 8.75 to 6.75 to 4.75 by each month. It went down two carries per month, basically. Uh, so his usage really, really shifted a lot as well. So we'll see if he's someone that they kind of reevaluate and say, okay, you're going to be a true you know, split backfield with Lawrence Tofilly. Like you said, Chris, I'm with you. I, I think Trey Benson is the wild card of the group. He has the measurables from a size standpoint, a pre-injury uh, athletic standpoint that, that I think you say, okay, we can we can work with this. Uh, I will pass along. Mike Norvell talked about this, and uh, Zach Blostein ended up getting some some scoop on this as well. That, that uh, Trey Benson's stats or, or his uh, his GPS speed 
is really impressive. And Mark Norvell mentioned that during one of the Semmels.com production shows. And Zach was able to confirm like he's a top the running back board uh, for what he's doing during some of the conditioning stuff. Like his GPS numbers are really impressive. So that's impressive from the standpoint of, okay, he's probably healthy, healthy-ish. If he's he's leading the uh, the position group in, in speed testing. So I think that's encouraging generally, but we'll see. Um, I kind of look at this group, Chris, I just, yeah, I don't know who the guy's going to be. Can Lawrence Toe Philly take that jump? Maybe. Um, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm Philly, underwhelmed. I Jimbo guess. used to love to call certain guys scoreboard lighters. That's what Toe Philly's capable of being. We'll see if he actually turns into that. I think you need him to be a little bit more, like you're able to use him gadgety late in the year and kind of generate some chunk plays. Uh, Clemson game stands, it comes to mind, but it's some stuff against Florida as well. But like, you need him to be more than that this year. He's going to be someone who probably has to touch the ball 10, 15 times a game. Can he yeah. do that? I don't know. Um, yeah. Last, yeah. Year, yeah, he, last year to some degree for him is kind of tough to evaluate because the Clemson game, when he got lit up like a Christmas tree, um, kind of hindered out. him. Yeah, that was yeah, a breakout it, it game kind of hindered too. him. He, he was stymied a bit for the back half of the schedule again. And he was starting – it was weird because they had the Jacksonville State game where they kind of force-fed him the mm-hmm. ball and trying to get him some confidence, I guess. And Including in short yardage situations where you have other backs who are probably more suitable for such a situation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. No need to <laughs> no – but, but it was – and then it took a while to kind of get him back in the swing of things. And remember that week of practice leading up to the Clemson game, you can kind of feel it coming on for him. You saw him start to make more plays. You get more involved in the offense. Like you feel it all happening. Then it manifests itself in the Clemson game. And then, like you said, he – he gets hurt and he's sidelined for about a week and, and just you know took him another couple of weeks to finally get back in the swing of things. So we'll see. I think they are leaning on him. You know, Trey Benson's the wild card, but maybe the, the 1A is Trey Benson. 1B is Lawrence to Philly. Can he channel that explosiveness consistently? Can he give you something 10 to 15 touches a game as opposed to like two to five? So we'll see with, with the running back room. Uh, one position group that I'm not super warm and fuzzy over to another one, Chris, tight end. You bring back Cameron McDonald, but you lose Jordan Wilson. Jordan Wilson was, by all accounts, their best tight end by the end of the season. He was really kind of starting yeah. to come on after that Achilles injury. I just, I'm looking at what they have right now. It feels very much so like you're going to have to go platoon and try to play to different strengths to to get it done. We'll see if anyone can emerge here in the in the spring uh, to kind of complement Cam McDonald. But there's not a like a surefire breakout candidate in, in my estimation. Yeah, I mean, McDonald needs to be 1A, 1B, and 1C, and then you need somebody else to step up behind him who can do a few things. I think the old money ball theory of this guy's a good blocker, this guy's a better receiver, this guy does this better, we're going to use each of them in each of these situations is fine and dandy, but you don't love that. There's a lot of scholarships allotted to tight ends for not a whole lot of expected returns. To me, that's kind of a negative roster evaluation. Uh, you know, I, I am of the hope that Jackson West is maybe that guy that takes the next step. I like Jackson West. I liked him as a recruit. I think they liked him last year. He's tough. He's capable of catching. He's a good enough athlete. So I'm kind of interested to see if he might be the guy that can step up as the next guy for them. But yeah, I don't, I don't love that group by any stretch. I don't, I think it would be pretty tough to find anybody that loves that group. Again, given the amount of scholarships they have there, it doesn't make a ton of sense that you haven't been able to find Someone and Cam McDonald like has been serviceable as a receiver, but that's pretty much his only strength up to this point. In my mind, Chris is like he should just be an adequate receiving tight end, uh, but he hasn't been a, a super well balanced player. And you know, this is what year four for him now or year five? Uh, he's going to be a redshirt senior, so five, okay. I believe. So, and he's his his 
run block rate according to pro football focus is 40.9 usually 60s average uh so well below average the second lowest on the roster as i'm we interested get, sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i was gonna say real quick that as just with that in mind this the lowest run block grade is preston daniel another tight end who i believe is going to be placed on scholarship this is what the usage of it becomes perplexing is cam had 100 or sorry uh cam had 539 snaps preston daniel had 115 I get the Cam McDonald usage because he gives you something in the receiving game. The Preston Daniel usage that much when you have other guys on the roster uh, that I think offer up something. Like Preston Daniel's role is to be what, Chris? Like what do they ask him to do? Blocker, right? Yeah, inline blocker for the most part. And he's not – he's your worst graded player. I know PFF's not the end-all, be-all with like it, it could be argued that they're not in the coaching room. They don't know the assignments entirely, but it's generally a decent barometer. For him to be the lowest graded blocker – on your roster when that's your main purpose that's a toughie so why not put it in white rector who actually has some speed to stretch the field why not put in jackson west and let him kind of get his ears wet because he is willing to be a physical uh gritty blocking type even if it's technically not quite there yet marcus and douglas is someone chris that they think has some nfl upside we saw it in times of his practice or during practice this past season at his size he catches the ball well moves fairly well too there's something there yeah as, he's, he's listed 64 276 right now by fsu so he's biscuit, basically an offensive biscuit. lineman body with some capability of working down the field and he has actually pretty good hands for catching it so mm-hmm. like at some point with that room you need to figure out is this guy going to help us or is this guy just stealing scholarship money because yeah. there's and, too many in that room plain and, and simple and i don't want this to be a i'm taking i'm sideswiping preston daniel here like there is value that he provides on special teams but like for him to be your third most used tight end this past year, and that means he's probably in line to be the second most used tight end, that concerns me. I think you have to really do a true evaluation of that position group and say, you know, can we run the risk of maybe a guy not knowing exactly where to be or giving up something from a size department and giving us some more explosiveness? Because the trade-off there is you have someone who's supposed to be a blocking specialist that hasn't been a particularly good blocker. You're on the verge of having seven scholarship tight ends and we're having struggles to name one after Cam McDonald, who we really, really like. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Uh, Brian Courtney is here in the in the spring, but I think that's a he's a converted quarterback. I don't think that's a I don't think that's someone you rely on this season. I mean, I think there's a real capability, and I I know I'm going to get a little ahead of ourselves. I'm going to behave today. Twenty six minutes in, I've done a pretty good job. But <laughs> uh, Johnny Wilson is a guy that I think could essentially end up playing a role that is somewhat like a tight end as a flex receiver, especially in the red zone in those situations, because I think he will be more reliable potentially than any of the other six guys after Cam McDonald in the tight end room for that situation. So that is, you know what, Chris, I'm going to give you credit because it's a great transition. You didn't get ahead of yourself. You transitioned us beautifully. Let's go to wide receiver. No, it's it's just phenomenal. We got you in in mid-season form already here before spring even. I think Johnny Wilson and to maybe a lesser extent, Josh Burrell kind of provide that hybrid inline or not inline blocking, but like a uh, hybrid flex tight end blocking specialist. I uh, remember they did a lot of stuff early on in the season. I think the first game, because Josh Burrell got hurt pretty early on where they used him as kind of like a, like a flanker as a blocker. I think Johnny Wilson could be used kind of similarly. He was the highest rated uh, blocking wide receiver in the country this past season. So yeah, uh, go ahead. Wax poetics. I know you, you like tight ends in general. So Go, go ahead and, and let us know what you think about Johnny Wilson and Burrell in that hybrid spot as we transition to wide receivers. Well, I mean, Johnny Wilson, 6'7", 225, really athletic and has an unbelievable wingspan, has a big catch radius. So that just makes kind of simple sense. 
FSU was recruiting a kid named Julio Skinner, you know, who basically measurement-wise had a lot of similarities to what Johnny Wilson brings to the table. And FSU didn't view John, I'm sorry, did not view Julio Skinner as a tight end. They viewed him as a big receiver. It's one in the same. And I think Johnny Wilson falls into that same caveat of a guy who is a receiver, but he's also essentially built like a big tight end, or I'm sorry, a big receiver that can play tight end. Mm-hmm. And then in Josh Burrell's case, he's more the guy that can win the fight in the phone booth. He's, he's physical, he's put together, he's strong. He kind of understands who and what he is from a skill and ability standpoint. You know, he understands he's not going to torch people down the field, that sometimes he's going to have to win in tight spaces, go up, play it high in the air and fight for it. That's a value. That That's a positive thing. There's a lot of guys who are really talented athletes who don't understand who and what they are. I think Josh Burrell is kind of the opposite. He's a good athlete who really understands who and what he is. So I think that has some value in the sense of a guy that can use in those tight spaces when the field minimizes because you're in the red zone or inside the 10 or in a goal line situation. So Johnny Wilson is one of four transfer wide receivers. He joins a group that includes well himself, obviously Micah Pittman, another kid from the West coast. He actually went to the same high school in Calabasas, uh, Kardashian hive, uh, do span speedy wide receiver from Illinois, uh, actually Florida native, uh, a converted quarterback. And then Winston Wright, South Georgia prospect who played at West Virginia last few years and was really productive there. Chris, as I'm doing the top 50 players of the spring list, I know how excited you are to, to hear what my top 10 is going to be at the end of this. I think I'm going to put Winston Wright in the top 10 and maybe even in the top five. Well, when we did the 10 transfers, I had Winston Wright as my number four transfer top receiver of that bunch. I think you may have had him at three, if I remember correctly. I think I had him a little bit higher than you. Not much, yeah. though. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think we all are in kind of agreement of that. He's very productive. He will stretch the field. He should open windows for them. He's also a guy that's going to help on special teams, as will Micah Pittman, which is an area they obviously need to elevate in. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. I think Wright and Pittman are two guys that are a little bit more ready-made to contribute and help them. Uh, Span is sort of the wild card to go back to Trey Benson with the running back. Span's a guy who's a he's a former quarterback moving to the position, but you know when you're six four, about two hundred pounds, and you can haul butt down the field like he can, it's intriguing. If you believe FSU can develop a kid, then he's a kid that you would hope they develop because he has some real ta- potential to tap into. And then the other transfer receiver was Johnny Wilson, who we discussed earlier, who brings something to the table. And then you also hope that a guy like a Malik McLean, who did have flashes, I think back to what the touchdown against Boston College, right? Mm-hmm. We caught it in the corner. Moments like that, you hope he can grow and prosper and do more of that. You hope a Pokey Wilson, Keyshawn Helton, who have for so long been a number one or number two for FSU, can maybe now be a number three or number four and be more effective because there's less of a load on their shoulders and they're going against a lesser player in the secondary as compared to in the past where they can't beat a number one corner because, well, they shouldn't be a number one receiver. I think up to this point, Chris, as we look at the positions that we've talked about, A.J. Duffy, I'm really excited to see what he does physically at the college level. Like, is, does he have the physical tools? We know he probably have the, the aptitude and, and the accuracy to make it. Will he have enough arm strength and, and mobility, uh, athleticism to to really be the future of, of the quarterback room here? Uh, outside of him, just as a collective position group, like those four transfer wide receivers and what they bring to uh, that room is going to be really interesting because, I mean, you got 12 guys, four of them are new. There's only so many reps to be had. Like, I'm really interested to see kind of what shakes out here, uh, partially because the four wide receivers are relatively like you could probably put that wild card label on three of them other than Winston Wright. I think you know more or less what you're going to get with him. The other three, like, OK, is Micah Pittman in a different role going to be more uh, more effective than he was at Oregon, where he averaged about 200 yards a season? 
Uh, is Johnny Wilson going to be more consistent? He had some drop issues last year. He was hurt, uh, but obviously has the physical tools, do span. You documented like that size and speed combination is really, really enticing. He's one of the more explosive yard per catch receivers in the country. The only issue is he didn't have a ton of catches. So those guys at, going into the mix and how does competition really change the way that room, uh, the way that the way that the outlook of that room, I think it's going to be a lot of fun this spring. Uh, knock on wood. Hopefully, like one or two of them, those new guys actually are solid players who who can legitimately make your wide receiver room better. I think they will. I think there's a chance that these guys can win one on ones, which you didn't see a lot last year. Yeah. But it'll be interesting. Oh, and don't forget Chris uh, Jakai Douglas as well as someone yes. who who is coming on and, and gives you a nice little gadget uh, potential as well. Yeah, FSC got me because they still list him as a running back, even though he's really not a running back for them anymore. Yeah, they'll change it. It's just he's all over the place. No, hopefully they can kind of figure out, okay, this is this is his defined role. I think they got it late last year, like what he is, right? I think we got it figured I, out. I think so, yeah. I, I think the flashing up the sideline, that kind of ability, the toolsy player that he is, is what they want him to be. Um, winning one-on-ones is a, it's a surprise. It's This offense can be very, very dangerous if wide receivers are capable of winning one-on-ones because it forces uh, – Back half of the defense they have to play a little bit more spread and wide on the field instead of bunching up in the box and competing to stop a running game and specifically focus on Jordan Travis as kind of the wild card runner for FSU. If they have less bodies, less eyes in the backfield, it allows the backfield to be more dangerous. It's kind of like on defense. If you got a good pass rush, it's going to help your secondary. If you got a bad pass rush, it's going to hurt your secondary. On offense, if you got guys who can win on the outside, it opens up things on the inside. It all works hand in hand. And that's one of the elements of the spring and this, frankly, 2022 season that I'm interested to see is how much does improvement out wide help Jordan Travis? Uh, how much does that help open up things for the run game? How much does a potentially improved offensive line transitioning uh, help out you know Jordan Travis in the pocket and getting the ball to the wide receivers who could be more explosive? But we're going to see how this all works together if it really can't elevate the offense and, and make it a more explosive and efficient group. So let's go to the offensive line, Chris. They have 13 guys on scholarship entering this spring. Uh, that includes some newcomers, Dr. Richardson, Kanaya Charlton. I don't think either of those guys are going to be day one guys, just to be transparent. And that also includes two transfers. Caden Lyles, we mentioned earlier, uh, he very much so seems like a grown man. You mentioned that he seems like a strength coach. I think that's a great way to describe him. And then Bless Harris, the FCS transfer, who's expected to, uh, to push for some reps at either tackle spot, uh, maybe as a swing tackle. Who knows? Maybe he'll surprise us and be a starter. So, uh, Overall thoughts on what the offensive line is going to be, Chris. And, and well, I'm going to ask you this way. Uh, do you think this group is going to be an average Power 5 group finally in 2022? Are we trending there? What would we describe them as last year? I think Just slightly it, below average? Below was, average? I would say a tick below average uh, when they were all healthy and playing – you know, playing as one and you had all five of them near 100%, I think they were an average to above average group, actually. Uh, the issue was injuries and depth were uh, – depth was questionable, injuries yeah. mounted, and by the end of the year they were ineffective. So that is why Caden Lyles is here now. That's one of the reasons. Yeah, they, so. they've addressed depth very well, and that was mm-hmm. a necessity. And last year they could not survive with their depth. They had six, seven guys basically most of the year, one of those being Brady Scott, and it was what it was with him. Caden Lyles is a massive help when you don't get pushed and beat up on the very spot where the ball is snapped and it causes a void of the middle. I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle for them. I think it kind of solidifies everything around him, helps on his shoulders with both guards, which therefore helps with both tackles. I think that's a massive piece. It also gives Marie Smith time to 
elevate himself, maybe add a little girth, get a little stronger, get completely healthy, and hopefully come and fill in that spot when Caden Lawless moves on after this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think they're going to improve. I think they can live in the world of average. Yes, I think they can be better to that degree. Um, I'm interested probably most with, and this name's not talked about a whole lot, but Thomas Schrader. I'm very interested in how he comes back from the injury, if there's something there we can contribute. He's a guy that they liked a lot before he got hurt. Not necessarily in the sense of he was going to play a lot, but that he was developing well. They thought he could be a piece, could definitely be a two-deep guy that would help him a lot. I am very interested in how he comes off that injury and what he's able to do. Also interested if we see him add another tackle. I think that's still an area where if you're able to upgrade, then, hey, go out there and get one. Yeah, I think this position group is incomplete because I, I do think – we're operating under an assumption that FSU could add maybe, let's say, three to four more transfers. I guess they technically could add more than that if there's significant attrition, but uh, let's say three to four. We've explained the numbers before. I think one of those positions is going to be a quarterback. I think another one is going to probably be offensive line. And then I think you know BPA for defense, maybe defensive end would be a priority as well. Somebody so let's, can rush a passer. Yeah, I think that's a priority. I know defensive backfield's been discussed. I, I think that will also depend on what happens in the spring and how they feel about the position, how much attrition there is. Um, just add a quick point on that. I think it's more safety than corner. Okay. Um, especially based on recent development of a certain somebody leaving West Virginia who was a corner. I think if that individual had left West Virginia two months ago, FSC would have been in the game before they got greedy Vance. I think when they got greedy Vance, the secondary need became safety. Some of that also depends, and we'll obviously talk about defense on a future pod. Mm-hmm. what comes of the attrition potentially of the secondary because that that's an area where it's pretty likely we're going to see a guy or two pack his bags after the spring just realizing it's not for me i'm not going to get the opportunity there's just so many numbers there yeah i was gonna say you have uh 17 guys in the secondary right now and you're talking about adding maybe one more so yeah there's there's going to be attrition talk about getting ahead of ourselves chris this isn't just one or two topics ahead this is like a podcast or two yeah. ahead uh so let's go back to the offensive line I think it's an incomplete, uh, incomplete picture of what you're going to see, but we are do have a, like a fairly decent idea. Okay, like the interior off offensive line, Caden Lyles. You mentioned Chris; he doesn't get pushed back. Like when I watched his film, watched two games of him, uh, Northwestern. Who was the other team? I think it was Iowa. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't get moved off the ball. I do have some concerns about how explosive he's going to be with multiple leg injuries and him climbing to the second level, pulling that kind of stuff, movement skills. But in terms of like, he's not going to get bull rush, which is there were times last year you saw against Florida where they couldn't run the ball on third and short or fourth and short because Marie Smith was playing injured. He had lost weight after getting sick. Uh, just just wasn't Game. able to to sustain uh, any kind of, of yeah any kind of forward momentum was not there. I do like Maurice Smith at 200 snaps in the season, a hell of a lot more at this point than I like him at 500 to 600 snaps and in the season. As a second team practice center, it yeah. massively helps FSU because FSU last year could usually field a good first team O line in practice. Sometimes. But it <laughs> fell off a cliff most days when you got the second team, and third team was a hodgepodge of walk ons and guys who shouldn't be playing O line. So that that hurts in a practice setting. I think one thing, with, especially the infusion of young talent who won't play this year but will help you in practice, is that they should be able to field more O-lines in the sense of running a practice and getting after it. And that, that helps for more competitive snaps. It helps to develop on both sides of the ball. And it's going to help those young guys who aren't going to see game action outside of here and there maybe, you know, try to take that next step into the college game. So a slight detour of this that I found is very interesting. Maybe our listeners will as well. I was just looking up some different stats the other day. 
So Dylan Gibbons was one of, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe 70 players nationally who did not give up a sack while taking 500 plus snaps. That's the way PFF attributes snap uh, sacks. Uh, and I think he may have had the second most snaps of anyone who did not give up a sack, which is pretty remarkable. Darius Washington only gave up one sack this past season. I think that was 98th nationally out of like 605, I think it is, players. And that one sack was against Florida where he played on the bum ankle as he went through the entire season without giving up a sack. And, of course, gives one up uh, the last game of the season while he's not 100%. Uh, after that, Chris, uh, let's see. Robert Scott gave up seven sacks, which was one of the worst nationally. Now, a lot of that happened earlier in the year when he was yeah, playing he on the bum wheel. As the year went on. Yes, he played his best football to the end of the season. Just a trivia question here. This is a player that FSU recruited. It did not sign, but as a player it recruited a couple of years ago, gave up the most sacks in the country with at least 500 snaps. Um, I think it was at 10 sacks he gave up. I'll give you three guesses. This is a player in the 2019 class, if it helps narrow it down. Right, that was the Darius Washington and Ira Henry year, I think. I'm not going to get it. The brain's not functioning that way this morning. Okay. All right, I'll give um, it to you. I'll give yeah. it to you. Kamar Bell. Okay. Not too far behind him was another familiar name, Florida State offensive line related and FAU related currently. Chaz Neal was right up there as well. That That's not a shocker to this guy. So just to comprehend this, like I think Willie Taggart, to be fair, may have inherited one of the worst offensive lines in the country, especially with Landon Dickerson getting hurt and, and Josh Bell, um, or Ball not being able to play at Florida State. And then it's very possible that they may have inherited one of the worst offensive lines in the country. And based on Chaz Neal and Kamar Bell's production at FAU, group of five level, like maybe one of the worst evaluators of offensive line talent in the country, as well as a coach. Um, that's a hell of a combination, which explains why we're talking about the offensive line getting back to average just now, you know, in, in 2022, when it's been pretty dreadful since 2018. Well, that's like, you know, I mean, a guy like Lloyd Willis is a carryover from that pass regime, correct? Uh, he was, he committed to that pass regime, but he was technically signed by Norvell. Yeah. Yeah. But he's one of those guys that you want to see, is he going to be capable of being a too deep contributor at tackle? He's got the body type, Mm -hmm. but can he do it? So, Yep. So I think we know real quick, we'll move on here uh, to other topics. So Dylan Gibbons, I think we know what he is. Very solid. Caden Lyles, if he's healthy, he's going to be solid. Darius Washington, I think he proved this past year, solid. Like you feel solid with him at a tackle spot. If you can somehow move him to guard, if you get an upgrade at tackle, I think Darius can actually play in the NFL as a guard. Uh, And then Robert Scott, again, if healthy, solid. So that's four guys you feel decent about. Then you just need a combination of Bless Harris, Maurice Smith, or Thomas Strader. Maybe if like a Lloyd Willis or Rod Orr uh, takes a huge step forward, those are both project guys. Uh, then you all of a sudden you talk about a starting five that you feel good about. But that's where getting Chris that that tackle or even a high end guard transfer really gives you that stable starting five and then some depth pieces as well. Then you're all of a sudden feeling okay with what you have on the offensive line. Yeah, yeah. It's, the group is capable of being better. It's not a definitive thing. I think the center situation improving is going to help everybody across the board, though. I agree. You're just not worried about uh, errant snaps. You're not worried about that getting blown up when it was just so ineffective last year. And I, I agree. I think that helps just the mindset and, and concentration. Chaos, too. Yes, exactly. And chaos is where a lot of guys get hurt. Bigger bodies start falling, start rolling, start getting hit awkwardly, hit from the side. That's where injuries happen. And when your O-line is struggling from its very snap point, I, I think chaos is a little more higher ranking. 
than on the outside. If you got an issue at tackle, it's just getting her butt kicked from around the edge. If you're mm-hmm. having trouble on the inside, you're usually trying to help, maybe tighten up, things like that, clean your splits. I, that That's where it's a lot of concern for me. But anyways, moving on. Okay, so that's the offense. We just kind of went and did, you know, uh, running off the typewriter type of, I guess it was just stream of consciousness about those position groups, how we view them, storylines to watch, whatever. Uh, we'll go to defense. I think probably not later this week, probably early next week, uh, we'll do the this finalized spring preview uh, position or position preview podcast. And then we'll actually start having access to practice and we'll have more podcasts regularly kind of noting what we see and, and takeaways and whatnot. So let's transition, Chris, to mm, I want to go to, you know, let's give the ladies some credit. They are, they are 10 and 0. Let's go to softball. Uh, you wrote a column, a really good column on it. This week, you can check it out at Knowles 24 7. And there's several really impressive wins in that 10. 10 win uh, column. So let's go over what softball is doing with a pretty remarkable start so far. Yeah. As you said, 10 and 0, I think they're ranked as high as number three in the new polls that are still coming out today. Um, they went to Clearwater, which hosts a great invitation the ESPN elite invitation. It's a collection of a ton of teams, including most of the best teams in the country. FSU went there and beat the number 15, number nine, number 16, number 24, number three teams in the country in succession. And the UCLA game on Sunday night, for those who didn't watch it, you missed one. That was really fun, really enjoyable. Felt like a bid to Oklahoma City or even more was on the line. Uh, just had kind of that thing. But I, I really enjoyed watching the softball team. I'm, I, I'll admit, I didn't really like softball years ago. I've gotten into it more because my wife likes it a lot. I like that it's fast. It's fun. They seem to enjoy the heck out of it, the kids that are playing it. Um, I think very highly of Lonnie. I think she's an excellent coach with an excellent staff. who does a great job recruiting, developing, and putting together a product on the field. She's very good in kind of every facet of what you have to be. And it's ultra impressive to me what she has done with that program, making it a national power and doing it consistently. But this group just looks like through 10 games, one that can certainly hoist a trophy. And I know that's a, it sounds like a hot take and I try not to do that. I swear to God, I try to avoid that, but no, you're the biggest hot take guy. I know you're, you're, off the off the hip and not very thoughtful but i don't fire them off very often um but no this group really looks like that they they can win with offense they can win with defense they can win with pitching i mean i got two aces and watson and sander cock in the circle they're both unbelievable uh ed Field, she just hits bombs i mean it's absolutely awesome to watch her hit home runs because they're not cheapies she crushes them I, I love it i enjoy the heck out of it it blows my mind that she redshirted last year i presume there was a reason to it but it's it's been a blast to watch her uh, Mac Leonard, who's a transfer in from Illinois State, has been a massive lift for them. She's been a big help. Last year, they so struggled offensively at times and kind of bogged down in the middle of the year and had, for their standards, kind of a a disappointing year throughout the regular season. You know, they didn't win the ACC, lost in the ACC tournament. But then they turned it on in the postseason and made that run and were a few outs away from hoisting another trophy. I think that group learned a hell of a lot from last year. They returned a great deal of that group. They inserted some new pieces to help elevate them even further. And they looked apart. I mean, they wholeheartedly look like one of those teams that can do whatever they want. They're going to be tested plenty. I mean, their schedule is good. Obviously, ACC, which is an improving league in softball, which, you know, FSU deserves a tip of the cap for that because FSU is a reason this league has gotten better in that sport. But they have a game with Alabama, who's easily one of the best four or five teams in the country. It's very much OU, FSU, Florida, Alabama are kind of the top four right now in most people's views. Obviously, FSU will play Florida in that group as well. And then, you know, they got Oklahoma State later in the year, who's a pretty good club in their selves. Um, so, yeah, they're they're going to be able to kind of prove it throughout the year. But 
they're they're fun as hell to watch. I uh, I went to the game in Tallahassee last Wednesday before they left for Clearwater. Really enjoyed watching it in person. First time I've been able to get out there this year and watch a game in person. I watched the majority of the games on the video feeds that they have, whether it's ESPN or uh, streaming. They're just they're if you it's weird if you don't think you like softball, give them a watch and give it a try because I think you'll end up actually really liking it because it is it's very quick. It's enjoyable. There's not a whole lot of review, not a whole lot of stoppage. Uh, watching FSU players play is pretty impressive. If you like pitching, they got that. If you like hitting, they got that. If you like good fielding, they got that. If you like base deal, they got that. They can do all these things. It's just, you know, I, I wrote the thing I did after the Clearwater thing because I felt like I needed to say something because the start's been phenomenal. But it was more like just it's so easy to like it. So often sports are they make it kind of miserable when things don't go well and unhappy. Softball is like the polar opposite of that. It's an injection of joy. Ooh, I like that. And the atmosphere, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm a huge, I go to softball game, but I have enough to like go, we walk by and I'll stop like during spring, stop and watch for a little bit. The atmosphere, it's so cool because it is this, it's like if someone was playing music in entire house and it sounded good, but then you like brought it into like a smaller room and amplified it. It's just this like, beautiful chaos of what the softball atmosphere is like at Florida state. You have people yeah. overlooking from the parking garage to that. That makes like this party vibe. It's a lot of fun. And the dugouts, they get after it for both teams. ESPN kind of jokingly described it as right ear, left ear when the different <laughs> dugouts were going at. And I used to find that almost annoying as someone who's a big baseball guy, but I've realized like that is part of the game. Like that is wholeheartedly stitched into the fabric of why there is a certain level of joy to the game they play. Let's move on to, I want to sandwich this. So that was something positive. Let's go negative. Let's go basketball <laughs> before we get to baseball hoops. Uh, RIP. It's just been, we yeah. talked about this like a couple of weeks ago, Chris, that they were running out of gas uh, just with injuries and, and losses mounting. And I, I think the tank is empty now, fair to say. Yeah, they've lost eight of their last nine. Plenty of reasons why injuries being probably first and foremost. And I don't want to you know, hit on that any more than needs to be said. It just It is what it is. But at some point, this team has to accept that those guys aren't going to come off the bench and play for them. And the guys who are playing kind of have to understand that. And I think there's a massive struggle currently from a mentality standpoint to consistently perform at their optimal level. I thought in the Duke loss, which I did lose by, I think it was 15 at the end of the game, um, or I guess it was 18. You know, 18 is a bad loss, but FSU played really well for a half, and they really, really competed. It's just they ran out of gas. That is a plain and simple situation where lack of depth, lack of talent, clearly against a pretty good team when an excellent starting five showed. And but they were the without their, start, game, their entire starting five for that specific game, right? They were without four of the five players that started in the upset in Tallahassee roughly okay. a month earlier. Wow. Um, That's crazy. And five guys who have started games. North Carolina game, that was a week prior, 20-point loss, down by 40. Not competitive, not impressive, piss-poor performance, put it simple. I thought last night in Boston was awful. They lost <laughs> by 16. They were down by 21. They were never within five or more points. They started down 11 nothing. They allowed runs of. 11, 9, and 7 at different points in that game. I just it, – it struck me. There was a point in the second half where they got it down to five very immediately out of the locker room. Raekwon Evans, three-point play the old-fashioned way, gets it down to five. They allow nine all run, and it's like they accepted they were going to lose when they were down 14. And it felt like a pity party for about a six, seven-minute stretch of game. And then the last eight minutes of game, they, they kind of competed down the stretch and closed the gap to the final gap that it was. But 
you can't do that. Like you just gotta, and I know it's tough and I know they're banged up and I know they're feeling sorry for themselves because they are without so much firepower, so much scoring, so much reliability, so much leadership, but like, it's not, it's February. You're not a freshman anymore. It's February. Like it's late in the season. It is your time to go ahead and do it. And Matt Cleveland, well, it takes him a lot of shots usually to score what he's scoring. He is a willing and capable player to put points on the board. Jalen Worley played very well at Duke. Bessie's played all year, but that's been kind of few and far between for him. John Butler's really struggling with shooting. I think he was one for nine last evening. He hasn't shot very well over the last several weeks. Um, It's just, you know, Cameron Fletcher is one guy that's kind of elevated in this stretch, and that's been enjoyable to watch, but there just hasn't been enough of that. And, I, you know, some of it is injuries, and I don't know how many of these games in this recent stretch they win, even if they play to their best but I would prefer to see them play to their best than what I saw last evening. I, I think there's times where they're not particularly very tough, which is tough to say because DNA-wise, FSU basketball usually is tougher mm-hmm. than most of their opponents, certainly out-efforts most of their opponents. Effort was flat-out questioned by the head coach after UNC. I think it's fair to question it after last evening as well. Um, that's just kind of concerning to me. I, I don't enjoy that. I don't care about wins and losses as, as much as I care about are you trying to do your best to potentially win. And, I don't think that happened last night in Conti form. I think they kind of they got bushwhacked out of the gate, down 11 nothing, and never recovered. I think that's as we try to look ahead and project to the future. Obviously, this season is what it is, and I think you kind of flush it. But as you try to look ahead to what the future of the program is going to be, can you bounce back and get to where you've been the last few years? Uh, how much of this is just anomaly with the injuries mounting the way they have, and this was supposed to be kind of a rebuilding or reloading year anyways? And how much of it, like, are we concerned about some of the cultural developments of guys not being particularly tough uh, as you would you normally expect for Leonard Hamilton coach team. Well, you always worry about stink not washing off, but I think Hamilton and his staff have proven over time that they're pretty good at uh, developing teams the right way mentally. So I'm going to go ahead and say, I think they bounced back in that regard, despite some of the low points of the last week or two or last month, basically. Um, I do think this season, even before injuries, hopefully has taught them about two things. One, the portal's good. Look at Wake Forest. I mean, they're improving your own conference. You can go to portal and quickly turn your team around, quickly improve in deficient areas. And two, FSU's roster development in the sense of how they're assembling it, I think has some you know issues. Too many Project 7-footers. Quincy Ballard's not a guy that can contribute at this level, plain and simple. And they've developed plenty of seven-footers over the year where it took time. I don't think he's one of those who will develop no matter how much time you give him. I don't think he brings any value to your roster. I think him leaving, going somewhere maybe he can play at a lower level, and FSU using that spot to go to the portal and get either a big or a true point guard would be far more valuable than what they have. I think the idea of kind of hoping a guy just naturally takes the next step elevates into that primary role, which they've been really good at all the years of allowing guys to do that and it paying off for them. Mm-hmm. You can't always fall back on that because Anthony Polite, even before the injury, did not do that this year. He didn't go from being Robin to being Batman. He stayed Robin, and when Batman left, Robin wasn't as good, and that was an issue for him. So I think there's some of those situations that they have to assess, have to address, have to understand that they have to be better at. They're bringing in six guys, Chandler Jackson's guy, who I think they certainly think will help him at the point guard position. I know they like Deontay Green a lot, but he's coming off a knee injury, so that probably hinders a little bit of who and what he can be as a freshman. Cam Corrin is a guy who I think will help him on the interior. We'll see how quickly he can help him. 
They've got a big project in that, but he's a talented kid. I don't have an issue with the big projects. I think you just also got to have other guys you can rely on as interior guys. The issue with this team was that it was either big project to Malik Osborne. When you lost Malik Osborne, there was nothing to step in there other than Harry Prieto, who I love the kid, great walk on bus his backside, but it's not good enough play for what you need in the ACC. So I'm hoping when they do kind of self-evaluate at the end of the year, they realize some of the deficiencies that they sort of put on their plate. And you always got to prepare for the worst possible uh, disaster, bad situations. You know, with football, we're talking about three quarterbacks. Well, you might need four because you've had a lot of injuries. In basketball, I think sometimes you got to think, if we lose this guy, how much of a fall-off is it to the next guy? And do we have what we need? I think that's an area where this team could have been constructed a lot better. Let's transition to final topic. Let's wrap it up with a little bit of baseball. Uh, season opener was this past weekend, went as well as it possibly could have, and uh, and got a game tonight as well, Chris. So I'll let you let you talk about one of your, your true passions in the world, which is FSU baseball, and a reason to be optimistic about the start to the year. Yeah, they had a season opening series sweep for the first time since 2019. They won on opening day for the first time in the Mike Martin Jr. era. They beat James Madison all three games, 4-1, 13-2, 10-4. First two games featured great starting pitching performances, Parker Messick on opening night, and then Bryce Hubbard, who won ACC Pitcher of the Week honors on Saturday. Sunday saw Ross Dunn start. He got into a little trouble with issuing too many base on balls. I got him run kind of quickly. The umpire on Sunday wasn't particularly impressive. Uh, a lot of just balls that could have been strikes, kind of game that dragged on forever because pitchers kept having to get run out there. And that was a situation for both clubs. That wasn't an FSU-only issue. Offensively, Alex Torrell, Torrell, uh, was excellent. Uh, Miami transfer ripped a grand slam to right. That's what he came in here to do. Also had several doubles. I think he had nine RBIs total on the weekend. Reese Albert, great to see him healthy, kind of sprayed it around the field a little bit, seven consecutive hits, three doubles within that, if I recall correctly. Saw some new pieces like a Trayton Rank, for example. He's a middle infielder playing short this weekend because Jordan Carrion was hurt. He was very good. I think he can slide in the second. He adds a little juice to that position. Uh, James Tibbs, who uh, platooned in left field along with A.J. Shaver. Tibbs was the better of the two on the weekend for that. Logan Lacey still looks like Logan Lacey, which is a positive sign. Colton Vincent at catcher can be better for them, but I thought he was fine for the opening weekend. The pitching lived up to what it's supposed to be. They think they have a great staff. They were that. Defensively, they were much better. There were a few errors, a few miscues, but nowhere near what we saw a season ago. Um, and I think that will improve as they get more innings under their belt and also as that infield gets carry on back at shortstop because he's such a key piece to what they're going to do there. So all in all, feel pretty good about it. They play JU tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, Carson Montgomery is going to get the ball first time he'll pitch this year. They threw pretty much everybody and played pretty much everybody who they're going to use this year over the weekend outside of him. And then this coming weekend, they host Sanford for three. And it starts ramping up a little bit after that. Mercer and then Cal the following weekend. And then ACC play hits him pretty early March. So uh, it's a good club. Uh, it's lived up to a lot of what me and his staff were speaking on in the fall and then into the spring of a team that can pitch should be much better athletically and defensively. And they believe they can hit. They showed those signs this weekend. We'll see as the caliber of opponent and pitcher increases, but feel pretty good about what I saw in house or over the three days. Real quick, real, real quick, Chris, easy for me to say is Reese Albert. Like if that obviously it's not going to be, hitting seven in a row but if he could be like the 2019 form of himself how much does that change the complexion of like how you view this this team's upside well i think it's huge i think if you got like him alex logan lacy 
uh, kind of smack dab in the middle of that lineup. Brett Roberts is also a very capable hitter. Uh, that That's real good juice pack in the middle of your lineup. I think you got a little speed up front with a guy like Jordan Carrion, who we'll see how good he is when he starts playing. He had a hip flexor that kept him out. Um, and, you know, I mentioned like Rank and Tibbs, who I think are capable, especially for freshmen, of being effective hitters. Yeah, you can be pretty good. You're, last year, the lineup kind of went dead in the back half. And when Robbie Martin struggled, it was a great deal. The lineup really kind of went dead. And Robbie was a guy that most people, including myself, considered their best hitter, like full quality, full spectrum hitter last year. And he just kind of, you know, fizzled for him. Uh, if Reese is a guy that can elevate his game and be the old version of himself, I mean, he's not the old version. He's different. But if he can be a highly effective hitter who consistently puts in play, drives runs in, especially being a doubles machine, yeah, they can be pretty damn good at play. They, The league is good. Notre Dame's really good. NC State's really good. FSU's in that discussion. There's a couple others who can compete at that level. But I think FSU can certainly be the best team in the ACC, which the league coaches tag them as in preseason if a guy like Reese Albert kind of returns to his old form and fashion. All right, we're just getting to an hour here. I promised Chris it would be like a 30-minute podcast, par for the course, for it to be double, so... We'll wrap it up. Uh, this has been On the Bench. Ibrahim Sinone, joined by Chris Nee today. Uh, spring preview stuff will continue again. again. I think early next week is what we'll aim for. We'll do a little tour of duty recap. I know you guys have been jonesing to know what guys running around looks like and, and who's the fastest. And Bigger, stronger, out of shape. You know, Chris, I'm hearing that this is a veteran-led group, that there's some newcomers who are really impressing, a few guys who still have to kind of buy in a little bit, but really collectively, you know, there's just a lot of upside, and, and this is a, you know. That feels a, very 2016 through 2021-like. <laughs> Hence why I have not gone too crazy with digging or reporting on what I've heard through workouts, because we'll believe it when we see it, right? So, yeah. all right, for Chris Nee, I've heard it's been on the bench. We'll talk to you guys, I guess, next week. Yeah, next week. Original and heartfelt movie in years. Magic like this comes around once in a lifetime. This Friday, experience it with your whole family. Can we do it again? If ready, PG.